0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 427. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Hayden Stafford. Hayden is president of global client engagement at Pegasystems, whose software is designed to help enterprises make better decisions through a scalable architecture and low-code platform. In this conversation with Hayden, we discuss the evolution in leadership skills, how top executives should approach social media, how to deliver customer engagement in today's complex world, how to improve automation and use AI optimally at scale with customers. You'll find all the show notes on mentordial.com and please do consider to drop in your rating and review and certainly don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Hayden Stafford, great to have you on the show. I got a chance to visit, see you in action at Pega World 2021. You're the president of global client engagement at the beautiful company Pega Systems. And you've been there for a year. Um, Tell us what attracted you to Pega a year ago.
1: Yeah, it'll be a year in six days. So uh, it's it's absolutely... um, Uh, a joy to be here. Yeah, I was, I was not expecting Minter to leave, I was uh, very happily employed doing great work at Microsoft. And I remember the day clearly, I got a random outreach from, uh, from Pega and an opportunity to meet with Alan. And I was aware of Pega, I knew of Pega I had a few of my employees had gone there over the years. Um, And I went and spoke with Alan and it became immediately evident that um, there was some real opportunity to take Pega to the next level, assuming you know Alan and the board were supportive. Quickly was able to determine that they were, and they were genuinely interested in accelerating growth. And you know the company has rock solid technology and a great client base. You know the biggest names in the world globally are big customers of ours, and you know we people use Pega every day and they don't know it. Uh, I always liken it to the Intel campaign. Remember the doo do Intel exactly. inside. Exactly. No one knew they were using Intel until until Intel told you that you were. And uh, so you recognize that we all use Peg every day, but we have no idea. And uh, what I looked at, Mentor, was just a couple opportunities. So right? I call them the five levers of growth of, if they could do just a couple of these five things, wow the upside is huge. So I left a, a very comfortable, successful career at Microsoft and took a leap. Uh, took a leap, betting on Alan, betting on myself, and betting on the technology that we could indeed take far fewer years to make our next billion than it took us to get the first billion. Beautiful. Well, you you left my good friend Ted Gold up in oh. Seattle.
0: Wow, You he okay. He and I uh, have been friends for, oh, I don't know, 40 years.
1: Well, my best to Ted. I'm hoping he's listening to this. I haven't uh, talked to Ted in quite some time, but a fantastic contributor to that business, the Dynamics business.
0: He's a a, a tremendous individual. Um, So, but talking about tremendous things, you you also write on your Twitter profile that you're a connoisseur of a rather brown or tan beer. (laughs) I would love to know how you got into that, and where do you think is the best pint of Guinness in the world?
1: Oh, yes, I am indeed. Uh, You know, I tell people that if uh, Guinness is available, I will choose Guinness 10 times out of 10 over any other libation. Um, I absolutely love it. It's thirst quenching, it's enjoyable. It's healthy. Um, It's it's, it's it's healthy, healthy. good for you. It's lower in calories and lower than alcohol than your average beer. Who would think of that? but uh, indeed, I'm a, I'm a big connoisseur of Guinness. So I've traveled all over the world. Um, I've been uh, to north of 70 countries, you know, just in my own traveling experience, as well as professionally. And I think I've tried a Guinness in almost every one of those locations. I lived in New Zealand for two and a half years, um, You know, went to the Irish pubs. And I will tell you, first of all, there's nothing like a draft Guinness. You, ha- yes. you have to have it on draft. Um, and The Irish people that are listening are going to love me for saying this, but there's just something about having a Guinness in Ireland. Um, And the UK is a close second. It tastes different. Maybe it's nostalgia, but uh, it's certainly in Ireland.
0: It's probably not traveled as far and um, it's got that Irish water in it. Um, So listen, uh, I just wanted to have that because I'm also an enormous Guinness fan. Um, so you you, you experienced Pega World 2021. Uh, I assume you you knew about last year's, but this one you were in heavy action. You were obviously involved, and you, you being in charge of client engagement and then putting on a show like this, I was just wondering what what was it like to put you know into practice engagement at that scale online in a pandemic.
1: Well, the one thing was certain. We set out the objective of not recreating a two and a half day event in two and a half days online. Everybody's got Zoom or WebEx or Teams fatigue. Um, and Don Sherman, I don't know if you've met Don oh, Sherman. Of course. Yeah. 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 He, he knows CTO. everybody. Yeah, of yeah indeed. He's our CTO. Um, as he said it so well, we needed to put on a cinematic experience compared to a theatric experience, which is, you know, normally at these sorts of events on stage. Um, so, you know, it was compressing things down to meet the human, the adult human tension span of short snippets and make it really engaging. Add some nice vignettes, some break points, and have a fabric that is easily interwoven within your narrative. Um, and I thought we did a really good job of compressing that two and a half days down into two and a half hours. And instead of fluff and a lot of filler, it was right to the point specific. You know, I think Allen's was the longest keynote at about 13 minutes, mine was probably the shortest at about six. And I feel like we got across the points that we wanted to get, of course, you're not going to get everything. I wanted to talk about specific examples with a number of partners, you know, I could really not talk about many just didn't have the time. Um, But the big thing for me in this one, because it was virtual is you could take advantage of bringing more clients, more of Mm -hmm. our end users into this than you could if you do it at a live event. Um, And I think you'll have seen throughout the entire production, our clients showed up in so many different ways and our partners showed up from Alan's keynote right through to the customer testimonials. um, The two things that are most important to me, our clients and our partners, were really well woven into the narrative and the fabric of, of Pega World. I enjoyed it. And by the way, you know, I think you probably knew this. Um, it, it it was very little of it was live. It was all pre-production shot, you know, earlier in March and April. Um, that really gave us a lot of time to really hit the key points and make it as polished as possible. So that was really a neat twist is having that ability to take and retake. Interesting fun fact for you. My six minutes, call it nine when you kind of look at the, the vignettes Custom. that I had, I mean, mm-hmm. each customer one, those nine minutes probably was about five hours of shooting time. Mm. So, uh, you know, we, we, we went for as much perfection as possible.
0: Well, uh, I think it's George Bernard Shaw, I think a fellow Irishman probably might have enjoyed his Guinness, but he said, had I had more time I would have written a shorter letter. It- <laughs> It does take time to to carve this out, and I really enjoy that insight uh, of making it cinematic as opposed to theatrical. Yes, and, and and obviously you still wove in live elements so that we felt that as a viewer we were you know had the opportunity to engage, ask questions, and and the live questions were answered when appropriately. But for the rest, it was all about being effective in transmitting a message that you wanted to get across uh, with, with yeah. no fluff.
1: It, it was, and uh, I, I, I agree with you. It was great to in, inter, you know, have the interwoven live and pre-canned. It brought a lot of um, empathy and humility to the event as, as much as just insight. Um, so I think the production team did an amazing job. The amount of work is just so under, I, I cannot state enough how much time goes into two and a half hours of a production like that. I mean, just months and months of effort. So a big tip of the hat to our production team who had to get cameras and scripts to all those different speakers, clients and partners. Um, Really just an amazing job. But I will say I'm looking forward to live events again. I very much agree.
0: I totally agree. I mean, congratulations for what you pulled off. So one of the the things that's always fun is to try to think about how do you make a theme for an event? And obviously you had some sort of key messages and the one that sort of stood out for me was all about rendering complex, simple. For you, what were the key messages and how was it challenging to keep it on to that message? Because as usual, of course, with so many customers, so many
1: products and things to say, it can be easy to get off track. It's a great point. And you really just nailed our new branding, by the way. Um, you know, anyone who's been paying attention to Pega over the last six months have seen a shift in our, in, in our branding. And there'll be a lot more, by the way, in the second half of this year. We just unveiled our new branding campaign internally the other day. Um, but our, our new brand is Pega will help, helps our clients crush complexity. Um, and it is, you know, our, our product is so vast and broad that we can t- help tackle virtually any problem. But keeping it as as simple and having clear entry points with immediate outcomes. You know, typically large complex projects take long periods of time. Um, with our new Pega Express methodology and our new App Studio, which is our you know our core methodology for delivery of our product, very focused on that MLP, the minimum lovable product, getting something out the door as quickly as possible to put points up on the board for the client to be able to demonstrate that they are able to achieve results with Pega quickly and efficiently. Um, and so to get that through in Pega world, we really carried three themes, and they, they were throughout. Um, and, it, you know, first Alan, then me, then Karim, it, it really amplified it. Who we are, Alan, what we do, that was me together with our clients, and how we do it, our product. Um, and throughout the entire Pega World presentation event, you got vignettes, takes examples of who we are, what we do and how we do it, culminating in the end with what I thought back to Don Sherman was a great live presentation, a little bit canned, but mostly live of, you know, where are we going? You know, what does the future look like? And, and, how, and we really held that theme of who we are, what we do, and how we do it, but in the context of future technology trends. Um, so I, I think we, we did a good job stitching that narrative throughout. And again, keeping it short, nothing was outside of Alan's keynote, which was still quite short. Nothing was more than five, six minutes long.
0: And I wonder about the selection of the band at the end. Uh, how, cool? how much... They were great. Um, I, I can't remember their name. Just I'm trying to remember. Walk,
1: walk, uh, walk the moon, I think. Walk the moon right. or walk, walk the earth. Uh, what? What? How did you come across them? I, I think that they're based in Boston. They are. <clears throat> they, uh, Tom Libretto, our chief marketing officer, has seen them a number of times and likes like them. They mostly do cover stuff, but they do yeah. have their own and just the energy. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know if you noticed throughout uh, the, the, the present of uh, the event, we had a lot of featuring diverse and inclusive points of view and perspective, a lot more than our past and really had an emphasis on what we're emphasizing internally, which is diversity, diversity at all levels. And I thought it was just great having that band, which featured a remarkable woman with great, great her, her her she just belted out the, the 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 music and the melody but the innovation that they had with right. using just wild instruments to yeah. make beautiful sounds um i thought it was really a good exclamation point on the theme of crushed complexity take complex music and break it down to simple things like forks and pipes and you know all sorts of random musical instruments in the back, I was just checking
0: the name is the walk off the earth. Walk
1: yeah, off. so I, I that was a lot of fun.
0: I really enjoyed it. And um and so I wanted to ask about your your um, life overseas as well. You you've lived in in New Zealand, uh Australia, and and in Singapore. That's and great. and one of the things that's because obviously with a the podcast, the, the audience is inevitably worldwide. And so having worked so much of your life in the United States. I would love to know for what are the experiences? What did you learn about working overseas, and what did that bring to you as the individual you are now, running the business you're doing now in
1: the states? Um, yeah, that's a that is a great question. Um, the biggest the biggest answer to that is, and it's kind of cliche, it's a worldly view. And let me dive into the detail of what that means. So yes, I've lived overseas twice. But born and raised in the US Midwest, um, I, I travel extensively uh, between 300 and a half a million miles, 300,000 and a half million miles every year. Um, so, you know, learning the local culture, yes, that's important, the nuances of each country. But I think the most important thing, Mintner, is a perception of America. Um, you know, and, and, you know, so often, like I hear it even at, at PEGA, the people in the field are our, our, our own people and our customers always refer to that corporate mentality, that Boston mentality. You don't really understand what that means until you've lived overseas and you can see how Amerocentric Americans are. And, and whether they intend to or not, um, you know, the branding of America and America's, you know everything they say and do And so when you live overseas and you, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk with these international folks and granted, you know, Singapore is a very westernized city and Australia and New Zealand are very similar to the UK and the United States and Canada, etc. You learn the perspective of what it means to be international when you can look at how America is behaving. So what that really has done for me is it's given me balance in how I approach my day to day life. Yes, I do work out of you know, Boston, but everything I do, I try to do with the lens of an international stakeholder, be it employee, customer, or partner. That is the most important thing, is the powerful perspective of, of an international opinion. That's lost on people who don't have that experience. You can say you think about it, but until you've been in that those shoes, it's pretty hard to actually associate with it.
0: Yeah, as having a US passport, I completely relate to that and, you know, oh, you Americans and and what that means uh, and what's going on behind in the the brain. And, you know, even like whether you're a Kiwi or an Aussie, they're different from one another as well. And and the subtleties are completely lost on us. It brings up for me this notion of inclusion and diversity because at the same time, so not only American, but a white male, where the challenge is is greater sometimes, you know, how can we, I I am the same situation, white male, get it? Because we don't know what it's like. We can think we do to be different, to have perhaps a physical disability or to have a different color of skin or different religion or whatever. So uh, I was wondering how how do you lean into that in in your work And, and maybe even thinking about the ethical framework that you can put in place in order for that to be implementable.
1: It is such a you know unconscious bias that exists in everybody, especially you know privileged uh, white males. It is it is it's acute, and it it takes a very open mind, patience, and um, attention to the details of what you're saying, what you're doing, because it's just so ingrained in us from the TV we watch to the culture we live in. I mean, I really applaud all of the movements that are starting to happen globally, whether it's around race, religion, sex, um, because it takes awareness. And I'll tell you, I was grateful that I was born into this awareness. And what I mean by that is I am a brother to five sisters um, I am a father to three daughters. I am an uncle to nine nieces and one nephew. Um, so my whole life has been infused with the perception uh, from, from a woman's point of view. Um, and, you know, it, it really it really turned on my awareness very early on. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing, though, when you look back when I was younger, people didn't talk about it. It was not made aware of those those nuances and the bias that existed out there. Um, but at the home, you know, at the home in within the walls of our house with my five sisters, I was very aware, very aware from a very early age. I can remember at three years old being dressed in girls' clothes and my sisters dressing me up and putting makeup on, and them talking about that and the, you know, the challenges that they have in society in perspective of what we were doing at the time um so i've been raised with that but even still today Mindner, i I think about everything i do everything i do with that perspective and let me give you an example i do a bi-weekly letter to the company i believe in full transparency uh communication i like the team to know what i'm thinking so i do a letter to my entire team every two weeks i call it take five with hayden and um it can range from the hardest of hard messages to the most uplifting and personal of messages. So it's just whatever I feel like talking about. So the, uh, the team knows what's on my mind. In those, I always try to tie the theme of the story to a quote and the quote could be an anonymous nobody quote to you know a very big name. And I always try to tie a picture to that quote which ties to the theme of the, the article. And what I go through in thinking about, in choosing those pictures and in choosing those quotes, because what I think that picture or that quote might mean, means something very different to others. I'll give you an example. There was one I did here about five months ago and I welcome this feedback. I had this picture, it was probably circa 1950, 55, of a Volkswagen bug, like torn apart, all the pieces hanging from strings in the shape of the car and it was about the sum of the parts is better than you know it, it, you know what i mean there um and someone came back to me with a very pointed point of view about my selection of a of a nazi um image of a you know german vehicle that Box was from roughly that time um and you know was i was i really thinking when i chose that picture so it's that sort of stuff. I try to research and think about, but I also just try to put myself in other people's shoes and how something might be perceived because you never really know what's going on with another person. You don't know where they're coming from, how they're affected. And I do that and I do it so hard and I do it every two weeks in the case of that mm-hmm. newsletter, but I do it in everything I do. And when I do make a mistake, I apologize and I'll apologize up front versus just brushing it off.
0: So interesting comment from my experience at university. I, my major was trilingual literature, but my minor was women's studies. And this is in the 1980s. So I was the singular male in the in the group. And wow. so, like you, I was put in a situation where I had to learn the language, if you will, and, not, and learn the the consequences of certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain words and 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 typical I would say of women in general is that they have a even bigger regard than just women. So we what well, we ended up studying women's studies. This is at Yale in 1980s is we studied minorities in general because yeah. that's how that sort of class and that caliber rolled. Uh, whereas you know so it was a it was a major eye opening
1: for me. So yeah when you say minority that's everything from race and religion to gender correct yeah of course yeah yeah
0: so that that was a that was i brought that with me um throughout my life so you've been in lots of really interesting companies hayden you've worked at salesforce microsoft and now at pega um, amongst others you've been in leadership positions i'd love for you because i like to roll into leadership how has leadership in your opinion, evolved over the course of your career?
1: Wow. That's a great question. Um, Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, there are certain principles that I think have been there since the dawn of, of leadership, you know, cavemen and women. um, And that is clarity, empowerment, and accountability, you know, Clarity from the days of the the cave people of I need to put food on the table and I'm going to do this part in that effort and you're going to do this part and empowerment being okay I'm going to do whatever it takes. If I've got rocks, I'm going to make a a spear or something. If I don't, I'm going to make shift and do something else. And accountability being if I don't if I don't hunt and I'm not able to deliver, my family starves. You fast forward to today, a leader. you know, if if your team's not clear on what you need to get done and what their roles are, you can never empower people because if they're not clear, they're going to do whatever the heck they think is appropriate. Right. And that creates standard deviations and all sorts of of problems of uh, lack of continuity. And then accountability is if you don't feel that sense of urgency and you don't own it yourself, how can you ever go and be empowered? To go and act upon the clarity the mission that you were given so i think that's a common thread that has always been there um what what has changed over the years is how we lead um i i'm over generalizing here but i do believe back in the day and i you know you look at some of the leaders of of major corporations and governments a lot of command and control a lot of absolute direction, clarity to the point of over-clarifying. Um, and now we've really moved into a world of empowerment and empathy um, it, it is especially in this last year and a half, but empathy has become more and more of a hallmark as generations have changed from the baby, baby boomers to where they're at today. So I try to uh, approach, you know, my leadership t- style with first of all, as I mentioned earlier, transparency you can't know what to go do unless you know what i'm thinking on how it should be done so that we're aligned um but doing it with empathy empathy in how you sell how you build strategy how you even code and do development of you know products having an empathetic point of view um and then there's all these side shoots mitner of um uh of how you know how you go about leading do you go about leading um through inspiration or through intimidation there's all sorts of different variants i'm a big believer in inspiration i think if you inspire your teams as opposed to intimidate them um you're going to have a longer lasting legacy long after you're gone so yeah. long answer to a very good question
0: hmm, more hope than fear if, if i had to take the two you know, inspiration versus command and control and, yeah. and uh, of course it You know, ultimately, as you said, there's elements, you always have to make decisions. So sometimes the buck stops here and you have to take the ultimate responsibility for it. So with regard to accountability at some level, there's always you as a role, but it seems that I used to, I mean, obviously empathy is a big topic for me and that's how I got involved with you guys. because. Um, of your attachment to this concepts of empathy within your system and, and how you integrate empathy into the next best action. So it's, it was very clear that that's why we needed to hang out. All the same, what's interesting is, is somehow having consistency, Your are in client success or in client engagement, having consistency with the way you want to express the company and the brand externally and how it's expressed internally. So in, in, in You Lead, my last book, I talk about this inside-out element of branding so that what you're trying to do externally needs to start at the core. Yeah. So with regard to empathy, it became, I think, very clear about being empathic within the company. And then you can learn to express it outside and even hopefully encode it into your systems. With regard to complexity, making complex things simple, I was wondering to what extent any of that transpires or or is implemented within the company, or is it merely an external facing component?
1: I think it's, I think it's a very external facing component. Um, You know, uh, we, we got to where we're at today, largely almost hundred percent organically. Um, Our growth hasn't come through numerous acquisitions where we bought a large customer base and a large revenue model. Um, It has come internally through hard work Um, Our projects are hard and um, we embrace it. It's at the core of our owner, founder, CEO, right? I mean, Alan is about uh, as, as disciplined mentally in terms of solving problems as they come. The problem is the rest of the world doesn't have that kind of intellect, doesn't have that kind of capability. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have struggled to grow at the rate of some of our competitors and other technology companies, because I I know we can. I absolutely know we can. We have the technology that does it. But um, our technology enables innovation uh, and entrepreneurism. So what we've installed at one company that is the same product at another, but is totally, totally different is something that we embrace. We embrace this autonomy, we embrace this entrepreneur spirit and internally we've allowed that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm being a little self-deprecating from a company standpoint here, it's it's an issue. It's a problem for us in terms of our ability to have absolute clarity about what we're gonna do, who we're gonna do it with and who we're gonna do it to. Um, you know, we've allowed people to innovate and have multiple perspectives and therefore different execution models. Oh. So you know, what? Like,
0: it makes me think of your, your newsletter you know if you can't admit your challenges then it's hard to, i mean of course it's admitting it externally but i think that 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 renders you more real and it, and in, and gets more engagement into the issue because you're being transparent about it to the extent of it even expressing it externally because there's, there's always this like oh well, i can't tell that yes you know, <laughs> so my image my image is going to be tainted or these other elements and I think frankly you're exhibiting what needs to happen which is to say of course you're not perfect I mean who the heck is
1: yeah exactly and
0: and embrace that imperfection as well
1: yeah I Um, am I am a huge believer in what you're just talking about almost to a fault I mean I've (laughs) known this I think about it um, often about am I uh, am I being a bit too open here? Am I being exposing ourselves, being a little too vulnerable? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think our clients, our partners, and our employees want vulnerability, mm-hmm. especially in today's world with all the signals coming in mm-hmm. from every different source, different perspectives, true or false, real or fake. People um, recognize that um, you need to be open and discuss things in order to solve them. Nobody has all the answers, nobody. So Mm -hmm. might as well admit it and get it out there on the table. I I mean, not bragging, but I think I've got a very loyal team and have over the years, because I've admitted, I'm not the smartest guy in the room by even, by any margin. Um, But I'm willing to have a conversation have a very democratic discussion so that we can get to an outcome that is the right one. It's it's incredibly important to me. Uh, that also leadership comes from the front lines. Um, I write a little bit of blogging, I haven't since much since I've been to Pega, just because I'm I'm still onboarding a year later, but I wrote a bit about leadership and the inspirational leadership and the importance of leadership to be in the you know in the trenches, getting their fingers dirty. You know uh, so many other large corporations the senior execs kind of sit in the ivory tower and call the shots and i talked about this in one of the things i blogged you know if you look at the major decisive battles in history um and i'm by all means not a war historian the ones that were won were because the leaders were at the front they weren't in the back calling the shots from a hill far away they were in the trenches with the team able to respond in real time to the signals that were coming in from the enemy. And one of the greatest examples of this was the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo fighting Napoleon. You know, Napoleon's officer corps sustained like 5% losses. The Duke of Wellington sustained like 80% losses. And by all means, I don't support leaders getting killed in battle, but um, that happened and, and the Duke won because his officers were in the trenches with the teams responding to what was happening in real time and providing those signals so they could change and change quickly and i believe that applies to business so that you can move quickly we're in the digital era and if you don't respond quickly you're toast it also is quite inspiring for those that you're leading you're
0: not sort of you know hands off white gloves you're actually in in the dirt and doing the doing the doing the deeds together i mean i i i I've done a lot on history and I, I've studied that and I've enjoyed thinking about, you know, where there's a, the Annapolis Naval Academy, I did a film about my grandfather was a Annapolis graduate and, and they were often given the, the uh, reputation of being a little bit hands-off and sort of snossy you know shoe and polish kind of spit shine type of officers and not being involved and in, in, uh, and I was very happy to hear a few of his um, people who work, worked for him under him um, talk about him being someone hands-on so yeah. but that's not always easy when you know you have bullets flying around <laughs> um, but I think it's an important part of, of leadership so I want to talk. Um, you mentioned blogging. Um, one of the things that's always interesting for someone of your position, where you obviously have an enormous stack, your, you know, presumably your time is is deeply measured. How do you view social media in general? What is your take on a role of social media? Given that most of your clients, I presume, are businesses, you're in a B two B space. Is there a, an interesting place? and use of social media for someone in your position?
1: Um, I think social media has changed a lot over the last four years, four or five years. Um, And frankly, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, I'm not a big fan of it anymore because of what's happened with social media. I've got three youngest daughters, as I mentioned, and I think it's having a profound impact on the youth of today and uh, the sensory overload of signals coming in um, and you know, FOMO, fear of missing out and needing to be everything to everyone everywhere all the time. Um, But I think it's got an amazing power though for awareness if used correctly, social responsibility of social media. Um, The biggest problem I have with it though is governance. You know, I can post something about what I think but how do you really know if I posted that you know I could have had someone else write it I could have uh, you know to, taken it from someone else and so therefore you know the the element of authenticity and sincerity is something that scares me about social media I think when used as a platform for good and that's all I use it for you know on Twitter I don't do anything personal I don't render opinions. Uh, about things, and in LinkedIn, I try to write about things that motivate people in the in the um, in my view of leadership. But you know, it, it's it's abused too much, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, Mentor, but it it scares me. It scares me what it's doing to uh, our youth and to this world. It's in many ways, social media is about bringing people closer together. To a large degree, I see it actually pulling people apart. So I try to keep it real basic, real simple on the my core values, which obviously other people may not agree with. Um, so I try to avoid opinion and more stay on fact. Did I answer your question? I don't know yes, that I did. Yes, you
0: did. That's all good. You know, it's it, it. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking social media. So it's supposed to make us, you know, be together, social, right? But yeah. you say it's it's ripping us apart. And then it, it makes us, makes me in a corally, corollary thought, how connected we are. We're all connected, but yet we're disconnected. So paradoxes Sorry. within our world. You, you very much enjoy CRM. You, you, you're a you're missionary with regard to pushing CRM uh, and obviously linking that into engagement. I was wondering, we've talked about how social media's changed, but how has engagement changed and, and what 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 is making engagement work these days?
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it's personalization. And there's this interesting paradox on engagement. And I'm going to speak from a sales standpoint, if that's OK. Um, so if you go back, you know, people will generally say sales has not transformed over the last 100 years. And I would argue it has undergone some of the biggest transformation possible um, because, you know, Engagement is all about personalization. If you go back to the, and I'm generalizing, but the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was all about you know deep relationship, country clubs and dinners and get to know you, know your family, have a very deep perspective. And sales started to transform as technology came in and as telephony contact centers. And there it was more about just less personal, less contextualized. And more about quick quick hits um, and and moving into the call center era inside sales and. um, You know, lack of personalization and now what's happened is this forced to go back to the future have deep relationships and insights but do it at scale in a cost effective model like what happened with inside sales, etc, over the 70s and 80s. But now it's the need for personalization of a scale model to be able to give you that intimacy that used to exist. So for me, it, the big shift is around personalization. knowing that I'm a guy who lived overseas a couple times, that I love certain sports teams, that I have Midwestern values in the United States, and that I have da 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 da. And then contextualized insight of selling to me within my channel, my time and my preference. Um, and, you know, having technologies that provide that insight in real time. And I'm talking 200 milliseconds, mm-hmm. not two hours or even two minutes, but having the technology that enables people to interact and engage. I mean, how nice is it to go to a hotel and they say, Hey, welcome back. Minter, you know, we know you like those soft, uh, down pillows. You know, we already have two of those up in your room and a can of Guinness. Though you'd prefer draft, but that's and the can of Guinness, um, you know, they, you just feel all of a sudden you're connected, and that's what whether it's business to business or business to consumer, that personalization at scale is where we need to, you know, where where we need to be as companies serving B2B and B2C clients.
0: Well, it, it reminds me of a story when I went to uh, South Africa. I went to a game reserve, and it was called Pinda Forest. P-H-I-N-D-A. I say Pinda because that's in Zulu, means to return. And when I we arrived, my wife and I, we arrived and, and they had a fridge and it was all you can eat. It was take what you want. And uh, we went out and did a trip. We took a drink and then we went out and did a, a safari. We came back and our fridge had been restocked, but it hadn't just been replenished as it was. Where What they noticed was that I had taken a gin and tonic and so they put two gins and two tonics in the, <laughs> in the fridge. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of one. Yeah, there wasn't canned Guinness, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, so that's why that story really resonated with me. Um, so personalization. So wh- where that leads me in my thinking is automation. And Hayden, I I don't know about you, but the vast majority of the automated experiences I have, presumably not using Pega. Are not good. The, the I feel like within milliseconds I'm getting either spammed or or sent the wrong journey, and 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 I don't blame them necessarily because you at scale have to deal with so many customers and you and you can't do it any other way. Yet the thing that strikes me is that there's this sort of incoherence between personalization and needing to be having enough trust to give the organization enough data to personalize to my needs. Yeah. Yep. And so that triangle or at least that relationship between trust and personalization seems to be off kilter. What do you think?
1: Uh, it is most definitely off kilter. And I think the, the, the automation is not being fueled or um, driven by intelligent automation. Um, what it has done, what what has happened, or we largely experience with the spam that's hitting us. They may know that you're a white male and that you live in Paris and truckloads and bucket loads of unfiltered, irrelevant stuff has hit you. I think as you start to get into responsible AI and intelligent AI, you know you start getting principles of empathy as we talked about. You start mm. getting principles of fairness. Um, a sense of transparency and self-learning as well. You know, the intelligent aspect of learning, what is fairness, what is empathy, and what does transparency mean to you? Um, So, you know, there's one thing to automate and there's another to intelligently automate, to, to learn patterns, to learn patterns of yours or similar individuals, and then making sure, and this is the hardest part. I actually spoke at um Case Western Reserve University they have a data science class and I spoke there about the role of of governance and um you know management of AI to make sure that it is not abused that it is um that it is regulated in a manner that is good for me- humankind that is good for the earth and that is good for society because obviously, if you start building this intelligence into these systems that are so pinpointed accurate at you, that can start to be abused from facial recognition gone awry, uh, to how um you know selection processes for whether you're a client selecting you as a potential client or not, right? Um, starting to do kind of the negative side of, of deselection. So for me, it's about the intelligent automation bringing together fairness, empathy, and transparency. Um, it's a very,
0: it's a very existential issue, and uh, somehow yeah. you want to give you. Want, I, if I want personalized service, I need to be able to give that trust and the data over. But then, if you know too much about me, I feel like I'm being spied on. And, oh, totally. You know, where's my Where's my privacy? And 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 you talked about governance you still also need to be profitable, right? So you need to be good for the world, good for society, do good, and yet be profitable. And it it feels for me that the the issue somehow is that the lead horse of your carriage, the many things you're trying to lead is typically profitability and efficiency. And as soon as that's the front, the way you lead in your governance and the way you're running the business, the chances of, putting empathy in front and putting smartness and trust up front, transparency, yeah. start rolling back because, oh, wait, 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 that's going to take too long. No, no, no. We, we tell them we're not good. We're not going to get customers. But that's what transparency and gaining trust is about, right? And showing imperfections and, and having that naivete to, to yeah. believe that if I, I say I'm not perfect, I can still be viable.
1: You know it takes a bold person a bold leader a bold company to talk about that to to talk about vulnerabilities and talk about your commitment to good you're right if if you're a publicly traded company you are measured on two things revenue and profit everything else is a side note a footnote maybe makes it nice to
0: have yeah
1: exactly nice to have but this comes back to the leadership principles that i spoke to earlier right clarity Empowerment and accountability. If you are very, very clear about what you're going to do, and more, almost more importantly, what you're not going to do, you can reinforce the things that you want to get through. I, you know, look, I'm not going to name companies that I think are, are good at this or bad, but I will say that I worked at Microsoft for six years in the new era of Satya Nadella. And um, say what you like about him or the company, but you know his he was very clear on the business model how we were going to make it but he was equally clear the same amount of airtime when he was talking about profit and loss and revenue he was also talking about empathy one microsoft he was talking about teamwork and he was talking about technology for good um so you know when you lean on a narrative that is absolutely clear about what you want and it includes you know ethical bias checks in how you run your code, your technology, and you talk about ethical governance, um, as equally, not as a, a footnote, that starts to cascade down into the organization. If it's a throwaway comment, a passing comment that you say once a quarter because you have to t- to make you know tick off tick the box, forget it. No one, no one's going to do it. Um, so I think it really takes powerful leaders to lead with their power of their voice and their actions to be able to land this, this element of, of accountability uh, of delivering you know technology for good.
0: Well, you, you, you very well expressed what Brene Brown talks about, which is it takes courage to be That's vulnerable. Courage. Hey, so great fun chat with you, uh, Hayden. What? How can someone follow you, see what you're up to, of course, learn a little bit more about PEGA PEGA world? What would be the best ways?
1: Uh, well, certainly the best way uh, about PEGA and PEGA World is you can go to PEGA.com and we have all the recordings and all the links out there. Um, you know, there's a, a bio about me and all the other leaders. You can learn about what we're doing for good uh, for society as well. You can follow me on Twitter, Hayden Stafford, super easy to find. And on LinkedIn, search for Hayden Stafford. Uh, you know, I, I do do try to, as I said earlier, Engage in things that are good for people, good for culture, good for society. So you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on PEGA.com. And uh, maybe you can find me someday with a Guinness in my hand. And hopefully I can have one with you.
0: That would be a pleasure, Hayden. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on mintedial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me Precipitating the danger To feel free Trust in my reason And let me show you why I'm a convinced man Back like to send my line